to funding the police. What exactly does that mean? Tanya Acker from Hotbench explains. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, everyone. We've got a great show for you today, which is brought to you by our fantastic sponsor, NBI, the National Business Institute. Attorneys have trusted NBI for their CLA needs for over 35 years. Visit nbi-sems.com today to find out why and use the promo code LEGALTALKNBI to get $100 off your next CLE course. All right, let's get to it. Hello, Tanya. Thanks for being with us today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, Tanya, you've had a full, interesting, and very successful career. You know, recently you starred as part of the judges panel on the TV show Hot Bench, which, like the Judge Judy show, resolves small claims matters through binding arbitration. And uh, you've been a longtime commentator on shows like Entertainment Tonight, Wendy Williams, Anderson Cooper 360, and many others. Uh, You've also worked at the office of the White House during the Clinton administration, as well as had a couple of stints in big law. And now, now you're an author of a book called Make Your Case. So obviously, very impressive resume and audience. There's much, much more that I can share, but we'll be here forever. But Tanya, I think your experience that's most relevant to our discussion today is your work in civil rights and your time as Judge pro tem in the Superior Court of California. So just to kind of help orient our audience, can you tell us a little bit about those experiences? Sure. So when I was in law school, I had the chance to work at the Civil Rights Division and the Justice Department. We were, I was working on the civil side. So it was, uh, you know, situations where uh, private parties were complaining of discrimination prohibited by federal law. Just as I started the show or perhaps just before, it was kind of right around the same time, I participated in a program that trained lawyers to serve as judges pro tem. It's really like a temporary judge where you can really kind of help the system, which is now suffering from a lack of judges, and you sit on different kinds of cases. I, I sat in traffic court, and I will tell you that people can be as up in arms about their traffic citation that they believe (laughs) that they got unfairly as other people are about a multi-million dollar dispute. I'm very grateful for the chance that that the opportunities that I've had to see so many parts of the legal system. Uh, I really think that it's good for me uh, now, and I think that it's important to have that kind of broad view of the system. Well, so getting to our discussion to funding the police, and so obviously I'm sure like uh, like me, you've heard this uh, bandied about in the news. A lot of it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and groups and organizations. And I guess my my opening question to you, Tanya, is like, what does that that expression mean to you? Defund the police. As you correctly point out, I think that different people uh, may mean different things when they talk about it. Um, I recently moderated a conversation with the head of the Urban League in Los Angeles. And he really clarified that a lot of what the movement is about, or at least what some parts of the movement are about, again, you know, it's hard to paint with too broad a brush, is about reallocating resources so that law enforcement isn't charged with doing all of the things that they're now charged with doing. I mean, I I think that really, to be fair, There are a lot of police officers, there are lots of of people in the law enforcement community who feel like they're stretched too thin. I mean, we've got 
police officers uh, in schools. We've got them performing all sorts of social service functions that really are not kind of outside their wheelhouse. And, you know, my experience when I've talked to people, you know, or been in situations where, you know, you you say you need uh, the help, you need the help from a police officer to get your stuff back, for instance, from the mover who won't give you your things unless you pay in more money. You know, there are all sorts of situations where private people need law enforcement and law enforcement's not there. I mean, they say, take it to, it's a civil case, take it to, take it to civil court. I think that when we're talking about what that movement is and how we respond to the situation that so many people are now aware of, Again, there are some constituencies that want to disband police departments altogether. You know, I know that there are some communities that have done that or looking into ways of doing it. I believe it's fair to say that more broadly, it's a movement about reallocating resources and kind of rethinking what it is we are asking members of the law enforcement community to do. I, I, I think that's a fair explanation of it. So, Tanya, back to some of these groups that uh, want to scale back uh, police enforcement. And, um, you know, there's communities out there that have high crime ratings out there. And uh, is there a concern that scaling back the police force in general will have a negative impact on those communities that need them the most? I think that we've got to be careful about just making any broad assumptions about budgets without really doing a deep dive into where the money is going in particular municipalities. So there are those, I mean, to be fair, there are certainly those who just want to scale back period, you know, pull law enforcement back. I think that there are others who have a more nuanced view, which is again about reallocating funds. It's about not charging or having police officers be responsible for certain social service functions. And again, if you look at the budgets, a lot of the budgets for social services in a lot of communities, they've been gutted. So we're asking law enforcement in some cases to do jobs that really may not be in their wheelhouse. Am I concerned about increased violence if you pull the police back? You know, I think that violence has long been a problem in America. I think that a lot of what creates violence in violent communities isn't necessarily because there's no police officer around the corner. I think that there are all sorts of reasons that it's motivated. But I I just, I'm very cautious, and I would be cautious about simply pulling back law enforcement or cutting budgets without really doing a deep dive into who needs what. Because frankly, I think that there are services that law, you know, there are times when people need law enforcement. And we're not just talking about violent crimes, you know, sometimes, but often we are, and they don't have the resources to do the sort of policing that some communities require. You know, I think I, uh, I think I agree with you. Um, I think sometimes we ask our uh, our men and women who serve in the blue uniform to do more than they're they're trained to do. And I think uh, you know I've been listening and watching and reading some of the commentators out there, including you know former members of law enforcement. And one of their concerns is it's not so much the training; it's it's they need more training. It's they they don't want one of their concerns with the cutbacks was that they don't believe the training is where they need to be for what we're asking them to do. And if you start cutting back the budget, they're not getting that training. And so, like you're talking about, we're asking a police officer who's trained to to uh, you know deal out deadly force in a deadly situation, but also to be a social worker. So, you know, if we start 
reallocating budgets away from police, in your opinion, do you think that we're kind of creating a, a worse situation by by not allowing police officers to get that training to close the gap on the job expectation? I, I really just do not want to see us deplete law enforcement budgets without thinking, well, period, right? Because I look, I, I think that, again, if you don't want to be forced into the false choice of having to decide between having a law enforcement community that feels as if it can treat black lives with impunity and no one law enforcement community at all, and I don't want to be, I don't believe in that choice, then you've got to think carefully about these budgets. I do not think that we should pull as many funds away from other valuable social services like public education, for instance, and simply expect law enforcement to do things like babysit kids in school. That's not their job. We need to make sure that schools are funded. But by the same token, I'm also not prepared for exactly the reason that you said. I'm not prepared to suggest that we should just sort of start cutting these budgets without thinking about what we're cutting, without thinking about whether or not we are handicapping the ability to train the sorts of people who we want to work in these communities. We need to make sure that we are giving uh, law enforcement officials the resources and the tactics and the training to defuse without necessarily escalating a situation. It has happened. It is done. It is not always the case that people are treated violently because they've made mistakes. I mean, that's just not the case. It doesn't have to be the case. So I think that we've got to really study this a little more carefully. And, you know, it's not a social media conversation. I mean, this is really lives depend on this. People rely on law enforcement and people rely on law enforcement to be fair, to value their lives as much as they do the next one. So it's a really complicated issue. I think that we all have to be very thoughtful about our next steps. I want to tap into your uh, experience in arbitration. Obviously, you were a part of a, a three-panel judge grouping, a panel of judges that uh, would uh, would apply arbitration, binding arbitration on some civil matters. You know, and as such, you know, there's a lot of creativity involved in that. And one of the more creative solutions, which I'm pretty hesitant about, was uh, you know, some some of these groups out there, some of these advocacy groups out there, in terms of wanting to. Um, you know, wanting to improve policing force. We're talking about, you know, maybe dismantling the police and coming back with some different type of service. And then I've heard uh, some countervailing pundits, you know, very pro-police, you know, bring up this one point, which I think is very, very valid. There's a partnership between the police investigators and the district attorney's office, you know, when it comes to chain of evidence and the expectation of constitutional rights. And and you having seen kind of a creative side in the arbitration realm, but also someone that has walked in the waters or swam in the water of civil rights. Does that concern you, the chain of evidence, constitutional rights, that partnership between the police investigators and prosecutors? Well, uh, just to be clear, the civil rights work I was doing was more on the civil side. But to your point, I think that it's really important just for the integrity of the system that we make sure that there are rules for how you gather evidence, that there are rules for how it's preserved. I mean, that's the whole reason people go to court in the first place, because they, they expect a fair fight. They expect rules to be followed. They expect the 
person who is the neutral third party, whether it's the judge or the jury or before you get to court, the law enforcement official, they expect a neutral referee. We have law enforcement, we have courts, we have all of these institutions because we sometimes don't get along with each other. That's why I think that we've got to be really careful and thoughtful when we talk about reorganizing how they work and reallocating funds. And again, I'm not saying that in some cases we shouldn't do that, but it's because we fight with each other that we need a fair, neutral third party. If you don't trust that the evidence has been gathered and preserved and collected and you know, in, in, a, in an appropriate way, in an unfair way, then you don't have a fair process. So I really think all of this points out the fact that we need that neutral third party. We've got to keep it fair and it should be treating us with the same, all of us, with the same neutrality and respect as it does others. If we don't have it, then I kind of think we're doomed. If you and I together had a magic wand to create the perfect law enforcement system based on kind of everything we've seen today, what do you think it would look like? It would be comprised of law enforcement officials who come from the communities that they're policing. Another thing that I think that is being uh, lost a little bit in this conversation is the fact that a lot of these departments are changing. You know, they have changed and they've changed because of the work of community activists and other people who care about fair policing. It would be a system where the people who, where the law enforcement would kind of assume, as has long been an assumption in this country, that all of us have the right to be left alone unless and until there is some sort of reasonable suspicion. It would be, it's a policing system where reasonable suspicion is not connected to the color of one's skin, which I think is too often the case. And it's one where our police officers have the training and the resources they need to jump into the middle of hard situations that, frankly, a lot of us can't handle on our own. We need a well-trained, diverse police department in order to kind of keep order when we can't do it ourselves. And, and you know, I, I know it's kind of nice to maybe suggest that without law enforcement, we might all just kind of work it all out, but it just doesn't work like that. That's not the case. That's my long way of saying I want my dream policing universe is one where law enforcement comes from the community and they treat all members of that community with respect. And they are prepared to protect that community from people who would compromise it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tanya. And before we sign up, will you just briefly tell us about your new book? Sure. It's called Make Your Case. It's out in October. And it's really all about what court can be. You know, I'm not providing people legal advice, but what I am is letting them know that going to court is sometimes tougher. It's not straightforward, but it can be. Sometimes it's all that people have, or it may be all they think they have if they want to work out a problem. You know, once again, we have courts because we sometimes don't get along and we need to make sure that we understand what the process is and know how to use it so that it can work best for us. All right. Well, thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 